All right, all right. How's everybody doing out there tonight? I've got me, myself, and I, and Mr. Christian here. What's up? Hey. All right. So the two of us are gonna be digging in a little bit of this man across the table from me. Gonna be asking him some questions. First yes, and sir. foremost, our beer of the day. Yep. What do we got? It's this Michelob Amberbach Dark Lager. Yeah. It's very smooth. It's made in St. Louis, Missouri, so... That's why you picked it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a Missouri boy. That's fair. Good old boy from Missouri. From Missouri. It's Missouri, not Missouri. Not I just Missouri. want to put that out there. Our it's, it's theology on tap, not theology on tap. Okay. Sure. All right, man. Well, I think we should just go ahead and jump right into it, yeah? Let's do it. Very cool. Well, I sent you a whole bunch of questions. I looked up a whole bunch of answers. Hey, that means I was <laughs> doing my job right. Um, all right, so hey, you know, we'll just go ahead and jump right into it. Um, so, how would you describe your theological leaning, sir? So, per episode one, I am I lean Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm. So, I want to preface everything by saying that whatever position I take now may not be the position you know, 10 years from now, sure. like if I look at my brother Chesley, Pastor Chesley here at uh, Christ's Community Church, mm-hmm. um, you know, over time, the more that I've discussed theology with him over the years, his positions have changed too. And it, it's just a, a process. So yeah. whatever I say now may not be what I believe in, you know, 10 years or so, because I'm still, I'm constantly searching for the truth. That's, that's what I'm a slave to. I'm a slave to the truth. And if what I believe is not the truth, I'll disown it and believe the truth. Okay. So right now, so I that, lean Calvinist. All right, nice disclaimer there. Yes. Uh, but I'm wrestling with open theism just because of the personal responsibility aspect. Yep. It's hard as a rational human being to uh, explain away personal responsibility and determinism. Mm-hmm. How do those coincide? How do they coexist? And the John MacArthur answer is, well, that's not that's not for me to figure out. You know, that's for God. Right. Which to a lot of people feels like a, a cop-out answer. To me, I'm like, does it feel like a cop-out? Yes. Could you definitively say that that's God's responsibility and he's the only one that could work it out? Yeah, because he's infinitely wise and infinitely intelligent. Absolutely. So I'm not going to put him in a box. Right. So... Let's take a step back. So define determinism. So determinism means that future events are locked in place. And determinism on its face is independent of a deity. So you can have a deity start the determinism or be the one determining things. Or you can be without a deity and things are just determined. So uh, determined. There you go. um, That's what determinism is. Now, predestination is literally theistic determinism. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of a lot of reformers out there that just kind of compartmentalize predestination salvifically, so only pertaining to salvation. And then there are a lot of other Calvinists that are like, nope, everything from from the toothpaste you use, the fruit, the food you eat, Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, everything has already been determined and ordained by God. Right. So I think the, the, the curious thing for me is, like, how would you distinguish that? Like, because if, if predestination was already kind of set in stone and that's where you lean to, like, how could you not say that every other aspect of life would be 
already predetermined as well. Well, that is the open theist question. Okay. So open theism, <clears throat> essentially it's like playing Skyrim. So for all the nerds <laughs> out there, you have this main storyline. Uh-huh. And no matter what you do outside of that main storyline, that main storyline is going to be the same. Okay. Uh, so open theism, it's, it's like the main quest line. You can't do anything to disrupt it. It has already been ordained by God. Outside of that, you have free will, free choice. Um, when it comes to my belief on free will, I separate will and choice. So will is wanting to do something. Choice is the ability to do it. So I have a choice. Do I want to eat pizza for lunch? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do I have the ability to not eat pizza for lunch? Yes. Yep. Now, my approach to will is that in the beginning, when God created everything, he created Adam and Eve, they had free will. Everything was perfect. Mm-hmm. Everything was good. Uh, and and, and uh, when sin entered the world, that's when our human will became enslaved to sin. So we no longer have free will at that point. Okay. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. You're an enemy of God, a child of wrath. You're a slave to sin. There's right. none righteous among you. No, not one. Right. Doesn't matter anything you do. A lot of Calvinists explain free will as uh, if they had a bunny rabbit and they stuck a pile of meat and a pile of carrots in front of it. Which one is it going to go to every time? The carrots. If you stuck a sinner in front of sin on his right and Jesus on his left, who is he going to pick? He's going to pick sin because he's dead. He's dead inside. He's spiritually dead. He can't choose Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's why Jesus has to choose us. Uh, That resonates with me. I know it's controversial, but uh, that that explanation uh, resonates with me because I'm like, you know, if we are spiritually dead, is there any possible way we could be righteous? No. The Bible says no. Right. At least my belief system. Sure. Well, I mean, like, I, I think it's, there. there's tons of reference as far as, like, we have no place to boast. We have, like, really no place to stand on. Yeah, I mean, even, uh, I think it's Ephesians 2. Right off the bat, Paul's like, nope, you're dead. You're an enemy of God. You're a child of wrath. You you can't do anything. Yeah. So, you know, but God, full of mercy. Yep. Yeah. So where do you, I mean, going back to personal responsibility, because you mentioned that before, like how does that play in with, with faith and everything else kind of getting kicked off? Uh, that's difficult to understand. So what do you mean by getting everything kicked off? As far as like point of, point of faith where we, we begin to believe. So like when you, okay. when you mentioned personal responsibility, kind of d- dive into that. So there are a lot of Calvinists out there that believe in uh, regeneration. Mm -hmm. Some believe regeneration occurs before faith. Some believe regeneration occurs after faith. The ones that believe that that it occurs before faith uh, believe that your heart is regenerated and then you have a free shot at choosing life or choosing sin and death. And Jesus... He makes that dichotomy in the Bible. He says, in this hand I have life, in this hand I have death. Choose life. Right. Um, it's literally like the Matrix. You got the red pill or the blue pill. So that's where, if you're of that viewpoint, that's where personal responsibility would it make it, its eventual entry. 
mm-hmm. into the world. Um, a- apart from that, I can't really explain just because I'm not as well versed on that. And like I said, I'm still wrestling with it sure. in my mind because as much as John MacArthur's answer is, seems like a cop out. I honestly think it's logically consistent with what he believes. So it's hard to uh, wrap my my mind around that. So logically consistent. Repeat one more time what he said. So he said when it came to the question of, of personal responsibility. Right. How can a basically, how can God hold us responsible for sin if we don't have the free will to choose sin in the first place? And his answer was, I'm not God. It's not my responsibility, key word there, to figure all of that out. It's his. He's infinitely wise, infinitely knowledgeable, infinitely intelligent. He can figure it out, not me. That's his answer. I'm like, as much as it seems like a cop-out, it's logically consistent to me. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, I I could definitely see it from the, the contrary from that as well. Yeah, that's the main... That's the main pinpoint for all the Arminianists to point at and be like, if all of you, if all of what you said is true, this part right here, it's the weakest point of Calvinism, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but Paul does address it in Romans 9. and We can get there eventually. Okay. So. Why not now? Why not now? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, in Romans 9... Let's pull it up here on the old interwebs. Yeah, man. I use uh, NASB, so if anyone wants to follow along, that's the version that I'm using. Okay. Uh, So I'll start kind of in the middle. So he talks about the descendants of Israel. Uh, And here we go. He starts out by quoting the Old Testament. Then Uh, He says, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it, is it, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right there, uh, there's some debate between, is that, does that you know, corporately save Jacob as the nation of Israel and corporately condemn Esau as the nation of the Edomites? Uh, debate about it, I can't answer that. Sure. Uh, he then says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So hold on there. Uh, For this purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Mm -hmm. In Exodus, we see Jesus or the theophany of God, basically. We see God harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, in the Old Testament, we see, so then he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he desires. Here, it seems more permanent. The hardening seems like a permanent condemnation. In the Old Testament, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Yep. So right there we see somebody, according to his spiritually dead will that's enslaved to sin, he hardened his own heart. God did not harden it. Harden it. He hardened it before, but now it was Pharaoh doing it. So 
we have a kind of a clash here. And in my in, in my interpretation, I see uh, he hardens whom he desires. The more I read Romans 9, the more it seems like a permanent state of being. You are hardened. God hardened you. You're done. And you'll see that as uh, vessels of mercy, and, and some say vessels uh, for common use, some say vessels of wrath. Sure. Uh, that, to me, explains if you're hardened, you're most likely a vessel of wrath. But, again, I'm not a theologian, so this is just my, my belief system. He then continues, uh, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? This right here is the he's answering the objection of personal responsibility. Why do you still find fault? How can you find me guilty when I have no choice in the matter? On the contrary, says Paul, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That right there is a key line. Because most people are like, how dare he just get to pick and choose who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, vessels of, you know, mercy and vessels of wrath, and how co- it's almost a conflict between personal responsibility and the problem of evil put mm-hmm. together, and then how can God, amongst all of that, find fault with anyone and hold anyone accountable since he's the one doing everything? On the other hand, Paul's like, when you talk about vessels of wrath, you should look at it from God's perspective. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath, allowing them to live, in some cases, you know, 60, 80 years old, being a vessel of wrath and not, you know, killing them yeah. like he could have. Like, so that to me right there, it's just the perspective. We can look at it through our lens as finite human beings and be like, this seems unjust. And we can look at it through God's lens and be like, I let this person live because I'm rich in mercy. He definitely deserved to die, or she definitely deserved to die a long time ago. It just depends on how you look at it. And also, when it comes to personal responsibility, Paul answers that. Does the potter have the right over the clay? Can God do what he wants with his creation? The answer is yes. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. Yeah. So. I don't think think you would find many that would argue that i think it's just um as opposed to the allowance of somebody's evil deeds because they had no choice in the matter to begin with i think you could also look at um some of the verses where it's looking at the universality of salvation like when jesus himself is saying okay the whole world yes so that's also a good point to raise up because john 3 16 does say on behalf of the entire world, Jesus died for the world, to save the world. We can look at that and also look at other verses, especially in the New Testament, yep. where we see not all of Israel are sons of Israel. Not all of Israel is, is you know, Jesus's, you know, people of chosen matter. Right. So where does that leave us? Does he actually mean the entire world? Well, there are many theologians like Doug Wilson who would say, if you lead, if you if you read uh, Revelations, and it talks about the different tribes of Israel, twelve thousand from this tribe, totaling one hundred and forty-four thousand. Most people read that, and I actually I've actually heard an Arminianist argument where only one hundred and forty-four thousand people are going to be saved. 
Yeah. Even my, even one of my Mormon friends has brought that up. And I'm like, well, just read literally the, the, next, next, verse, yeah, the next verse where it talks about where he turns and he sees more people than can you can't even count that high. Right. If you saw that many people, would you say the world? Because I probably would. They're talking billions of people. I'd probably say the world, even though it's literally not the world. But that's just a debate. Um, I don't have the objective dogmatic answer. I sound dogmatic because that's just my personality, <laughs> but I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. So, and I mean, like, I'm not, um, I, I think in a different world or like a, a past life, um, like a couple of seasons ago or maybe younger me, I would totally try to go toe to toe with you. Just because I think that'd be the Baptist part of me. I was like, what are you even talking about? This is ridiculous. As someone who is Reformed Baptist for a little bit, I respect that. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's, I think personally, I've just come to a place to where um, I have the utmost, I have the utmost respect for just kind of the tension in scripture. Yeah. And I, I, I can't really, um, I can't really fall on one side or the other. Not that, not that I don't have um, principles built off of scripture. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is like, there are so many things to where it's like, okay, well, this is a solid argument for that. It's like, well, jump ahead a couple books. Let's see where we're at. Yeah. Like in Hebrews, there seems to be a specific contradiction to perseverance of the saints. Right. So you it have depends that you really have to dive deep into it. Right. So, I mean, you have, I mean, you have Hebrews six, Hebrews 10, like those are, um, those are like boat sinkers. <laughs> like they're pretty, like they're, they're pretty, they're pretty hard to, to reconcile with. Um, and I mean, you even have, as far as like the discussion of, of sin itself, you get into first John and parts of that. Like there are, there are verses in there where it's just like, wait, what? Yeah, it does. It makes you think. So it, it's just like the more, like you said before, that the more you kind of allow yourself to explore scripture and, and to allow the spirit to move you, the more your, your theology evolves. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. And I actually agree with, like, the tension, the friction of Scripture makes it, like, you want to read more of it because yeah. of that friction. Absolutely. So. Yeah, I can't agree more. Because, I mean, I, I think, like, I, I I don't think it was, I don't think I quite understood it until, like, I was actually in a debate with a close friend over over points of salvation. And, yep. and it was, you know, my own deep deep research trying to reconcile that you know just be like how could you possibly come from this point of view how could you how, how could you do that but it was through that it's like my own discovery and all that and it's like wow there, there is scriptural evidence for their point of view there's also a ton of scriptural evidence from the other side and they're obviously both in the bible right <laughs> and and uh this is why i separate choice and will because you see indications like once you are saved by jesus yeah you have free will again because even Paul tells you, don't abuse your freedom. Right. You have Christian freedom. We're not enslaved to sin anymore. So now when we sin, it's worse because we know what we're doing is wrong. Spiritually dead people don't know. Right. They're slaves. So, uh, I mean, that part right there, it's just, it's a lot of Calvinists that I've, I've listened to and met. Probably the more deterministic ones would probably cringe. Um I don't think there's any way to escape that. I really don't. I, it seems to me like once you're saved, you got free will. Yeah. Now, even Paul said, I, I had free will, and then I made myself a slave to Christ. So he enslaved his own will to Jesus. That's We're kind of called to do that, are we not? Yeah, definitely. So then in the end, do we really have free will for enslaving it to Jesus? So that, that daily surrender. Yep. Yeah. And at that point, 
know, Jesus calls us to do a lot of things that we don't want to do. And our carnal man is constantly wrestling with us to not do it. Absolutely. So I think this might be backpedaling a little bit, but I mean, obviously you, you have enough knowledge there. You, you've given the, the sincerity of, of effort to really figure out these different points of, of your belief. How did you come to becoming a Calvinist? Well, uh, so I asked Jesus into my heart when I was four, but I, when I, whenever I got older in high school, I really didn't pay much attention to the religion itself. Um, but then whenever I was 19, I had, I had some girl trouble. Okay. And it took my brother essentially to say, hey, you're coveting this person and you need to stop. And he, he said it like with the right amount of force <laughs> where it just, boom, hit me in my heart. Yeah. And uh, then one day I was coming home from work and he had on this Matt Chandler sermon from uh, when he was speaking at Liberty University. And I watched like two minutes of it and I was, I was hooked. Yeah. So I watched anything Matt Chandler could get my hands on. And then I came across this video we're speaking to this short little old balding man with glasses who kind of has a slight lisp that turned out to be John Piper. <laughs> and uh, I was listening to it, and John Piper asks a question about Calvinism. Like, is it is Reformed theology the correct theology? Yep. And Matt Chandler says, I don't see how it's not. And that just hurt. Because <laughs> I went, I, I'm going to Evangel University. It's an Assemblies of God school. Right. Arminianism t- on steroids. Yeah. And, you know, we're all ta- like, ah, ref- it's almost of the devil to talk about <laughs> predestination. Um, so that, it actually hurt me. I was like, he's a Calvinist? Like, how dare him? But then after that, I was like, you know, I have to understand, like, why does he think this is true? Because I trust him. I trust right. his judgment and his opinions on things. So I literally listened to anything I could get my hands on about Calvinism. I went through the whole acrostic tulip um, for those who don't know, I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but I came across this guy named Doug Wilson who actually debated Christopher Hitchens and gave him a run for his money. And actually toward the end, towards the end of uh, Christopher Hitchens life, the only people he really wanted to hang out with was Christians yeah, people like Doug. <laughs> yeah. Cause he wasn't crazy. He was super freaking intelligent. Right. And, uh, he was a a genuine guy who had really solid opinions about everything, belief systems and everything. Uh, logically sound. And so I just, I dug up Jeff Durbin, Doug Wilson, John Piper, Dr. James White, anything I'd get my hands on. Yeah. And then whenever I read the Bible after learning about the Calvinistic lens, it all just made so much more sense to me. It made me a better Christian because of it. Now, when you start to become a Calvinist, because you start learning all these things, you become really crusty and in many cases, <laughs> arrogant. And I I was, I'll admit it right now. I said I was arrogant for like a year and a half, but my best friend's like, dude, it was like three or four years. Yeah. As if I'm still arrogant, but you know. Um, so yeah, once I, once I became a Calvinist, I had this urge to just find out as much as I possibly could, learn anything that I could. Right. Because it was so logically consistent to me and it made God much bigger to me than Arminianism did. Like the sovereignty of God blows my ever loving mind because he controls everything. 
And while that may be a debatable point, and sovereignty to the Arminianists and sovereignty to Calvinists are two different definitions, mm-hmm. Calvinism just it just made God so much bigger. And I think that's what really drove me to Calvinism. And I only call it Calvinism because that's what everyone knows it by. I prefer saying Reformed theology because I don't follow Calvin. Fair. I'm not a prophet of John Calvin. Fair. Yeah. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and that's who I follow. Yeah, and I believe fair. that theology is the one that he preached. But right. you know, we can debate, and I'm, <laughs> at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's a it's an open handed issue. Yeah, it's not a closed fisted one. No, it's I think that's fair. And going back to what you said, yeah, I can attest personally. There's been more than a couple of uh, self avowed Calvinists that I wanted to punch their lights out. So. Because they had... It's <laughs> just with hindsight, it happens almost with everyone. Like even all the Calvinist meme pages that you follow yeah. always talk about everyone goes through that phase where ju- they're just the most cockiest, arrogant oh my gosh. piece of doo-doo that you just hate. And I get it. I understand. But it's because they strongly and firmly believe, you know what, we have the right answer. And in some cases, you need people like that that sure. are unwilling to back down. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, but also, God needs to work on our hearts. <laughs> a little bit of humility could be necessary. M- more than a little bit. You're being nice. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Okay. So you mentioned uh, Tulip, and I think um, that's the first go-to for almost anybody. Yes. That is the puzzle piece. So there are a lot of, they call them five-point Calvinisms. They're right. referring to the cro- the acrostic. You'll get people like John Piper, who's like, I'm a seven-point Calvinist. Oh, but we'll limit okay. it to the five points. Mm-hmm. So TULIP is the acrostic. Uh, the T stands for total depravity. I don't think there's a human being on earth that's a, that's a Christian that would disagree with this. It is the idea that when you are born, you're born into sin. You're an enemy of God. You're a child of wrath. You cannot choose righteousness. And the righteousness you do have, Paul says, is like dirty rags, essentially menstrual rags uh, compared to God. It's... It's really bad. You, that's how terrible we are. That's the sense of total depravity. We are slave to sin. The U stands for uh, unconditional elect. So by no condition, there's nothing you can meet to make you elect or not. It's unconditional. Uh, unmeritorious. So doesn't matter what you do. You can make a million dollars. That may not get you to heaven. It doesn't matter. Right. The L is one of the most controversial points in Calvinism. It's called limited atonement. It's the idea that a finite human, finite amount of human human beings are going to heaven, and there will be human beings that are not. And the reason that limited atonement is a thing is because, uh, well, we've got some verses I think that I wrote some down here, but mainly it's the uh, the the logic behind it. If I went to Taco Bell and ordered a number seven, and they charged me for the for two number sevens instead of just the one that I ordered, well, I'm paying twice for only one thing. It's the same thing with Jesus. If Jesus died on a cross to cover my sin and my debt that I owed, and then I still go to hell, sin is being paid for twice. Seems unjust. That's the idea of limited atonement. So it's it's the right amount of atonement for the right amount of people. It's perfect in every way. God did not fail in saving people. He saved everyone he meant to. And that he didn't save everyone he didn't mean to. So a lot of people, I prefer Doug Wilson's title of it, calling calling it definite atonement instead of limited atonement, because when people hear limited, they think of a smaller number of people. Yep. But really, it's it's limited technically, but 
so many people beyond our wildest imagination are going to be saved by God that limited just makes it feel small. So definite atonement, I kind of agree with the title. I stands for irresistible grace. If God moves on you, you can't resist it. Mm. Pharaoh could not resist God hardening his heart. And Paul could not resist Jesus softening his. Uh, the P stands for perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Yep. Now, I know people will point to real-life examples of uh, pastor. There was a pastor recently that uh, denounced his faith. I think it was Josh White. I can't remember his, I can't remember his name. So I, excuse me if you're listening, pastor or ex-pastor. He doesn't believe in Christianity anymore, um, or at least the biblical version. Yep. Now, they'll point to that example and be like, see, not saved. The argument is, one, either he wasn't saved to begin with, or two, we haven't seen the entirety of his life. Right. He, could, he could legitimately be saved and just going through this patch, this season of life where he just thinks he doesn't believe, and then you don't know what will happen in the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the argument. Um, I, I think when you break down the scripture in Hebrews, it talks about uh, that you, when you read it, you think perseverance of the, saint, of the saints is a rejected argument. I think you have to read into it a little bit more and actually do some really serious exegetical work to figure it out. I, don't th- I think perseverance of the saints, one, is the most comforting doctrine in the doctrine of grace. <laughs> And two uh, is an actual thing. Yeah, I don't. God doesn't lose who He means to save, and that goes back to irresistible grace. If right. you're going to be saved, you can't be unsaved. God chose you; He doesn't change His mind, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, I think that. I, I think the the references in Hebrews specifically they are they are very difficult. But I mean, just kind of going back to the tension, like there's so much more. I mean, Jesus said Himself, you know. There's, once you're in the hand of God, like, you're there. Yep. You know, and then, And if you notice, whenever he left the 99 sheep to go get the one, he didn't lose any other no. of the other 99 sheep. Yeah. And I mean, even, and, and my, so my argument against that has always been like, you, um, you look at Paul and, and what he says, you know, all of these things that could not separate you from God, you know, he says Romans life. 8. Yeah, yeah. He says life. One, one's own actions during their life could not do that as well. Of course, he names off all these other things that would be more adversarial or things that might try to get in the way. Yeah, he brings up torture and stuff, yeah. and I'm like, oh, if it were up to me, I'd be out. I'd be out. But yeah. uh, he includes almost everything because he's trying to make a point. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, it it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah, and uh, going back to that, yeah, I, I would have no scruples to say I certainly have um, a very hard time um, taking a stance where it would be tulip i would probably be more of a tulip person myself tulip tulip without limited <laughs> I, I understand it's the most controversial yeah point of calvinism and like i said it's a it's an open-handed belief so right. you're not any less of a christian <laughs> just for disagreeing with it but to me it makes logical sense yeah and jesus I mean, is paying for my sin yeah and I, the whole world is saved now or he died for the whole world and paid the price for the entire world why yeah. am i still going to hell Sin is being paid for twice. That's illogical and unjust. So th- that's that's it for me. That's that's my opinion on it. I I know other people disagree, and like I said, I'm not any I'm not authoritative. <laughs> right, you're not going to beat it's the Bible. If God at the end of the day says Christian, you're wrong, then I'm wrong. It doesn't matter what I believe. Or something. Right, yeah. 
I think that's the biggest thing too, is kind of always leaving that space up, you know. Um, so I kind of wanted to get into this and I really wanted to, to focus on this more than anything, but, uh, so it's getting pretty crazy out there. Yes. Yes, it is. And I know that you love to talk about this anyways, but, uh, do you want to kind of dig into a little bit of your, your stuff? My, what stuff? Political views? No, not your political views. (laughs) Okay. Your end time views, my friend. End time views. Okay. So I say I am a partial preterist post-millennialist. So preterism is the idea that uh, all of Revelations has already taken place, save for a few verses. Partial preterism is part of what preterists believe that has taken place has actually taken place. Uh, When it comes to the Antichrist, here's what I wrestle with. Uh, So... A lot of people say the mark of the beast, 666, uh, it's like an economic, well, people now are like, it's like a microchip, an RFID chip that you stick in your wrist or your forehead, right. and if you don't have it, you can't, you know, you can't go about in the econ- the economy, you can't purchase things right. or anything. Uh, 666 is how you should say it. It's an alphanumeric code called Gematria that the Hebrews would use to name people in code, basically. And if you work out that alphanumeric code, 666 reads Nero Kaiser. So it's talking about Emperor Nero. There is also a guy named uh, Antioch Epiphanes, who many thought back in the day was the Antichrist because he was an evil man. Look him up. And Nero, obviously. In some cases, people think he was the most evil man to ever live. That guy was demented as all get out. And there's a, I'm, I'm hoping we'll have Pastor Jeff Durbin on the show eventually, <laughs> but he'll talk about uh, Nero having, the Bible says there'll be 42 months, basically yeah. times, so people take that to mean two years, time, one year, and half a time, so half a year, three and a half years of the Antichrist raising, that's like 42 months or so. Sure. Well, if you look at Emperor, or Emperor Nero's uh, time frame of when he just went bat bleep crazy <laughs> uh, and just was did all these evil things the time from when he started to his death was about 42 months um, so and a lot of the things that the Bible talks about that he does uh, or that the Antichrist will do he did in fact he made it very hard for Christians to participate in the Roman economy back then mm-hmm. uh, because he was tr- he was evil and trying to persecute them and he hated everything about them you can even read about tacitus the roman fires so tacitus was an ancient historian who admitted that uh the christians were blamed for the roman for rome getting you know catching on fire yeah but it wasn't really their fault but you could see like even tacitus admitted they hated christians he hated christians but he also said there was something about them and their community that was just different than everyone else so as far as like the the one world, like all all nations, all of that, you would go to Nero, like as far as the the one world government. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't <laughs> have the answer for that. There's a lot of books out there on eschatology that I haven't read. I I really want to read Doug Wilson's book about it. Yeah. Um, I really want to read some of the other books about it. Even the Arminianist views, the non-preterist views. Uh, so post millennialism is the idea that. Throughout the millennia, society 
all over the world is going to gradually grow into people like Christ. And it's we're gradually going to be more Christian as as time moves forward. Pre millennialism is the opposite. Right. Uh, <laughs> a millennialism, you, uh, it's just a mess. Everything's a mess right now. And I say I'm a post millennialist, but every time I turn on the news <laughs> or you know get on Facebook or something is just getting you know going whack. People are out of their ever loving minds. Yeah. So that brings you okay. So let's flash forward from the Roman Empire for a little bit. Let's look at today. How has all of the stuff that's happened in the last like eight months, probably even shorter that time, that contributed last, like, four to my months? Yes. eschatological yeah. view, or has it at all? Like I think that's a that's a really good question. So, I think when you when you are a post millennialist, you have to break things up in like five hundred year increments. Okay. Because if we look at it just face value right now, we're going <laughs> to say the world is going to hell. And there's nothing we can do about it. It is. <laughs> It is crazy. Right. But if you look at, you know, 500-year increments, it seems like we're getting more and more like Christ in a, in a lot of ways. There's a, I think I saw something in Poland in 2016. They voted their monarch, monarch to be the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> they don't have a monarch, monarch. Their monarch is Jesus. Wow. And it's official. You can look it up. That would, that, that is awesome. That's amazing. Right. So as far as the last eight months go... I think what we're seeing is uh, just signs that Jesus is returning soon. But I'm sure that oh, in every generation, every generation probably thought they were the they were the generation that Jesus was going to return in. Yeah, I think that's where you get into an interesting point where it's like there's a cycle, and you can kind of go down the rabbit hole with that. But I mean, I got in this argument, or not even really an argument, but a discussion about like, all right, the stuff that was going on, going down in like the 20s were absolutely like apocalyptic back then. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I totally agree. And a hundred years later, yeah, we're, we're getting into twenties. So, seems apocalyptic right off the bat. We yeah. got pestilence. Seems like one horseman's already here. Yeah, you have you have the uh, the like the twenty seven year marking up as far as like the locusts waking up in Africa. You have yep. the, you have this great sandstorm through the Sahara Desert traveling yep. across an ocean. Rumors of wars and rumors of wars. We're talking like stuff with China is getting crazy. Yeah, we had you know military. Just basically showing off our our air aircraft in Guam, and it's called an elephant walk. We basically marched out our aircraft to basically posture at China, and then right when we were done, we moved everything off Guam because they have a missile <laughs> that they nicknamed after Guam because it can apparently take out the entire the entire area. Uh, we have naval ships that were lined up on the South China Sea because China is trying to claim that as their own territory, and yeah. now they're beefing with India. So I mean, you have the two biggest countries are beefing with each other. So that's that's three, right? And I mean, they're stealing intellectual property. China's bad. They're chained up and encamped, you know, internment camps of Uyghur Muslims, like two million of them. Oh yeah, don't they even beat and, and torture Christians and murder them and exile Uyghurs and Christians. Yeah, don't even get me started on that. But I mean, like, for, but I mean, like the, I don't even know if they are or not. And this might just show my limited knowledge of the book of revelation but like the four horsemen yes like you have pestilence three uh, of them right that's three pretty much yeah so like, the fourth I, one is death i think <laughs> and i think the bible talks about i think revelations talks about uh, a third of humanity would be wiped out yeah i'm still waiting for that like the coronavirus isn't doing that no. right right now there's not like our deaths are down in america by like 92 percent since march 23rd right so 
Mm, no, that's not, not but, really. But I mean, so maybe maybe carrying with the post millennium millennialist, right? Post millennialist, yeah. How does that? Because this, you're gonna have to school me a little bit. But are the seals being opened during that, or does like the thousand years happen and then, like, how does that play out? You know, uh, this is uh, another the, question the, where the um, bowls being poured out, and you know, it, all that type of stuff. It seems like it doesn't not like yeah. 2020 just seems like God just opened all the seals. You know what? This is the <laughs> year I'm coming back. Yeah. What I meant by time was actually month yeah. and half a month. Surprise. So seven and a half months, three and a half months is when I'll be back. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know. I can't answer that. It seems like seals are being, you know, the trumpets are sounding and seals are breaking open. And now we've got all these world events that are coming that are a sign of Jesus. Right. Um, and then everyone talks about the great tribulation. And that's the thing with uh, back in Nero's time. That was the great tribulation in a lot of partial preterists and even full-on preterists' views, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of post-millennialist views. But also the spirit of the Antichrist, which the which Revelations talks about. I would make an argument that, yeah, Nero was the Antichrist. So was Antioch Epiphanes, Xi Jinping. Sure, and, uh, they all had the spirit of the Antichrist, and their actions bear that kind of fruit, as yeah. foul as it is. So I, I really can't answer that question. I don't know for sure. In my opinion, it seems like it. <laughs> the Great Tribulation start. One world governments. That's a that. Trib is seven years, isn't it? Yeah. So yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but <laughs> the last three and a half years, and we'll know if someone goes. I hear they're rebuilding the Temple Mount in Israel. I'm not sure that's true. But if they are and you see some really big hotshot politician that's defecating on it or peeing on it, then you'll know it's time to head to the hills, as the Bible says, or else you're going to lose your life if you're in that area. Um, So there's also St. Malachi, or Malachi, I don't know how you say his name, but uh, he's got St. Malachi's prophecy. He basically predicted all the popes and anti-popes from his time all the way to now, and we're supposedly on Peter of Rome, who's he's the anti-pope, basically, who ushers in the Antichrist. Uh, that's not canonical. Sure is interesting, and gave me anxiety for about a year and a half, <laughs> but uh, it's not canonical. However, it is astonishingly, How accurate? astonishingly accurate, like right. in the 80th percentile. And not only did he just name n- names of, of popes, but he had like little little epithets of each pope. Right. Um, like I think it was uh, Petrus Romanus, uh, glory to the olive. So basically the pope right now, Pope Francis, was uh, part of this Olivetan discourse, basically. And he even, I think he even predicted the previous pope of actually being like the first pope to ever just step down. Yeah. Not actually dying, right. just stepping down. Uh, he predicted some of that. I'm like, most of that. And his prophecy got lost for like a couple hundred years before the printing press. And then when the printing press was invented, someone magically found it <laughs> and then printed it all over the world. He probably figured he had time to wait, so and he just hold on to it. Yeah, <laughs> it's stories like that where it's like, okay, did some family just pass it down from, gen- like his family yeah. pass it down from generation to generation, and as soon as they heard of the printing press, they were like, yeah, you have to put this in there. Right. But that's another thing where it's like, that seems oddly predestined, does it not? There's <laughs> a whole lot of coincidence somewhere. It's, it's sure. like an exodus where 
Moses' mom is like, you know what? They're going to come. Pharaoh ordered my son to be killed. I'm going to stick her, stick him in this wicker basket or whatnot and just put him in these reeds. Yes. And at that time, at that specific area, it just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter was walking right there and saw the basket. It is divine serendipity. That's it's, what it is. <laughs> it's predestination. Things were ordained to happen. Right, that yeah. <laughs> That's my argument for predestination and determinism. Like there are too many things. The That's lineage it. of Jesus all over the Bible, Moses and Exodus is one of the biggest books I think for predestination. Yeah. I read it and I'm just like God's handprints and predestination, his ordination, everything all over this book. I literally can't argue with it. And Proverbs is even, like I think it's Proverbs uh, 16.33 where it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord makes its every decision. And the lot is like dice. You toss them on a table. So for like political disputes or just figuring out what to do, right. they would toss these die onto the table. And uh, it's supposed to be we're making this decision after random chance. Right. But that's not what the Bible says. It says God makes its every decision. There is no such thing as randomness, no such thing as chance. That's what that says to me. Okay. So so coming back to today. Coming back to today, <laughs> I don't think that it's by chance locusts are coming out of... At, I know it happens like every 25 years or so. It's just kind of... Yeah. No, there's... I, the timing is the, odd, isn't it? The timing not? is definitely odd. We have coronavirus, then we got locusts, then we yeah. have murder hornets, and yeah. everyone forgot about murder hornets because June... Kanye West screwed it up for everybody and wants to run for president. I don't you know. You have uh, Dust Bowl times two. Yes, so I saw that. The, That's the crazy. Sequel. I mean, I don't know. Wars and rumor, rumors of wars with China, I think. I yeah. think we're in a cold war with them right now. I, don't, I think there was, there's rumors of physical war with them. Yeah. No better time to repent. Kim Jong-un, is he really alive? That that man that they say is Kim Jong-un looks like a devil. Doesn't look like oh him. They have different teeth and a different nose. I know I sound like Alex Jones here, but <laughs> that man does not look... Even Twitter knows it's true. That man does not look like Kim Jong-un. We can always count on Twitter to be our... our I know. It's it's our objective choice. source of truth, and it's our arbitrator. So I... Or arbiter, arbitrator. We didn't... Going back to... Uh, just everything. So where where does the rapture happen in, in your view? Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, so Thessalonians is where they get the idea of a rapture. Yeah. Uh, I want to take John MacArthur's position on this because he says it's going to happen and we won't be there for the Great Tribulation. Right. I don't know when it's going to happen. Um, I think it will happen. I'm not sure when. Well, yeah, I don't there's think a lot of people who think that the rapture is talking about as soon as Jesus comes back and he steps foot on the earth and he raises everyone yeah. from the dead, basically, all the elect. That's the rapture. And I don't know. I don't know when it will happen. I don't know if that's the rapture. A lot of people think that before the Great Tribulation gets really bad, God will snatch us up all into the air and then let the Antichrist roam free for three and a half years after that and wreak havoc on everyone and then i don't know come back down and regulate <laughs> regulate is putting it nicely <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah yeah fun times and uh even more fun times getting there yeah <laughs> yeah i hope i hope you're right with jesus because i feel like 2020 is the year to get right <laughs> yeah this is uh the guy with the cardboard sign at the end is nigh yeah he was right all he along he was right all along he just had to be patient until nigh was relative <laughs> yeah. it just meant 2020 yeah 
Uh, so yeah, um, certainly encourage everyone to uh, repent. You know, exactly. Probably a good time. Jesus died for you and resurrected <laughs> and paid the price that you owed. Amen. Because he loves you. Yeah, absolutely. He wants you in his family. <laughs> <laughs> so what else you got there, man? I just had some verses that I wrote down to use as far as to defend uh, predestination. Okay. There's one verse that, like, I try to read as an Arminianist, and it just doesn't compute. Okay. It's Acts 13:48. So Paul and Barnabas were talking to the Jews, and then they turned to the Gentiles and started preaching to them. And it says, all who were appointed eternal life believed. If you were an Arminianist, you'd want that to read, all who believed were appointed eternal life. Yeah. But it doesn't say that. It says all who were appointed eternal life believed. So if something came first, it seems like the appointing eternal life, which means it seems like God chose them, and that's why they believed. Um, Then there's, uh, I just wrote down Romans 9. That entire chapter is like the meat and potatoes of Calvinism, all of it. That's their go-to chapter. There's Ephesians 1.11. So... When it comes to work that we are ordained to do, a lot of people say, well, I can choose not to do it or not. You can, <laughs> in a sense, uh, Jonah chose not to go to Nineveh. <laughs> and he didn't just say no. Like, even <laughs> my brother says this. It wasn't just a no, it was a bleep no. He picked right. the farthest point on the map to at that time period. It was Tarsus. And he was like, I'm going there. I'm not going to Nineveh. Right. He he chose not to, but guess what? Where did he end up? In Nineveh. Also, we have... Not the best way, either. Yeah, no. <laughs> getting swallowed by a fish? Like, good Lord. And that... I, I don't know what kind of fish it was, but if it was a whale, God ha- would have had to move that whale into the Mediterranean Sea <laughs> just just for that occasion, which just speaks to, to his sovereignty yeah. even more so. Right. It could just be a Goliath that they fished out, like 450 pounds. That could swallow me or Jonah. You never know. But mm-hmm. Ephesians 2.10, for, ha- uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared work for us to do, and we are going to walk in them whether we want to or not. Yep. Jonah was going to be the one to go to Nineveh and tell all, all of Nineveh to repent. He didn't want to. He ended up there anyway. He gave a pretty bad sermon, and then they all repented. They all repented, <laughs> even despite um, Jonah's anger. And then God was gracious enough to give Jonah shade while he was watching Nineveh hopefully burn down with <laughs> fire and brimstone, but then it never did. And it never happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's such a great example. That that little uh, communication between God and Jonah is just so... It's epic. Because yeah. I'm like, if that is not a microcosm of all of humanity, I don't know what it is. <laughs> God is so gracious to us and gives us shade, even though we don't deserve it. Right. It's almost uh, typological, yeah. referencing Jesus. Um, Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. So he counsels himself, predestines things. I, I just don't, as an Arminianist, I don't know how you can wrestle with these verses and not believe in predestination. And a lot of people will point to uh, James as he predestines via foreknowledge. So he looks down the vast references of time and if he sees that you choose him he chooses you because you chose him 
But that's not what the Bible says. No. I know James talks about it. he predestines via foreknowledge. Or I can't dispute that. But I don't think foreknowledge is him looking down time and seeing people who choose him, and because they choose him, he chooses them. That God isn't reactive. He is active. If he were reactive, that means something caught him off guard. And I just don't that think that doesn't happen. Yeah, it just yeah. doesn't happen. You have bigger issues at play if that's where you're That from. to me sticks God in a box and makes him seem smaller than what he actually is, which is why I cannot get on board with Arminianism. It yeah. just seem, makes me think that God's smaller. You know, and it's 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 interesting because you would see almost a similar argument on the other side too saying that okay because it's limited or because there's only chosen or anything else like that that you'd be putting god into a box yeah you, you hear like the exact I, verbiage and there. almost like that's exact like <laughs> part of the hypocrisy of calvinism is like oh arminians arminians put him in a box and then we we relegate him to a five-letter acrostic <laughs> yeah i i understand yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the acrostic doesn't, I don't think it puts him in a box. I think it tries to represent sure. how he operates Yeah. in trying to do so. In some cases it puts him in a box. There's, there's but, no irony lost there. Right. There's none. <laughs> but I do think the limited atonement isn't putting God in a box. I think it's God. If anything, it would be God putting himself in a box, but I don't think he does that. I think he just, I'm, I'm God. I do what I want. If I want people to be saved, I'll save them. If I don't want them to be saved, I won't. And them not being saved will only project my glorious nature more than if they were saved. And like Paul says, can you find any injustice in God? May it never be. You'll never, God is not unjust. He is not evil. He is all good. All right. So, I, I mean, you can, people can disagree with that. I definitely think the irony is a little bit laughable because, I mean, I've thought about that before because I, I see it, which is one of the things that, that's humbling about that the Holy Spirit had to work on because it's like yeah. we have this acrostic that we adhere to and we complain about Arminianists putting God in a box and then we have a five-letter acrostic five that puts him in a box. You got you to gotta do all five points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I And I, I think that's also just part of the human condition as you – as you walk with Christ is just that the, there's so many things that we just don't know and just right. can't understand and just finding ourselves ourselves in a place where we just surrender to him, you know, walk with him as humbly as we can and say, you know, I'm on for the ride. You're exactly. going to, you're going to reveal to me what I need to know and anything beyond that, it, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. hundred <laughs> percent agree with that. Yeah. I mean that that might be my that might be my uh, nineness coming out where it just like I abide. It's fine. Um, but well, it's see, I'm a six and I value <laughs> I I value you know guidance and support oh, and totally. rules. And I want someone to tell me what to do. Like I want to be the boss, right? But I also want someone like God, who I can trust, is all knowing, and he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Right. He's uh, omnipresent. I want someone like that telling me what to do because then I know it's the right answer. Yeah. And that's, I think that's also why I'm attracted to Calvinism because it's like he, it's just like the Bible says, right. I can plan, make plans in my mind and my heart, but the Lord establishes my steps yeah. and whatever I, whatever I do was ordained, I was ordained to do it. So I think that's attracted to me just because of my personality and sure. um, which also when I'm a six, I also very strongly hold to my beliefs. So it's very hard to persuade me otherwise. Yeah. 
that's just also part of my nature, which seems to be a lot of Calvinists, actually. Maybe maybe right. Calvinism is just all the sixes. Yeah, <laughs> all the INFP sixes that oh, just yeah. mingle together. <laughs> you know, when you say that, it, that's not too far off. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think that might I think that might be the next thing we we talk about is just um, okay. So, which denomination or which theological leaning has is each enneagram personality each enneagram type? Personality type. Yeah. It's like you're you're what is it? You're probably like you're. I guess maybe like your twos, your threes might be your Pentecostals, but I don't know. Might have to look into that later. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. I would say sevens are sevens. Sevens are probably Pentecostals, absolutely. like charismatics. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm a wing seven, but I definitely don't think I'm charismatic. Or is it your type fives? I don't know. I like my my experience with the Enneagram outside of what people tell me of their own thing is I read nine, it hurt, I stopped reading. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I don't need to know the rest of them. This one's mine. <laughs> yeah, that's how I know I was a six because all the core fears were like, <gasps> yeah, you know, I felt like I was getting stabbed. Right, and then they were twisting the knife. Like I almost, I almost fell over myself because I was listening to it on the treadmill and like I almost just tripped. Like, <laughs> ah, that, uh, part that's of my amazing. part of my soul just irked. But alrighty, so I think where that's going to go ahead and conclude us. So thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Alrighty.